0: Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. This is contemplative conversation uh, number 11, and this is the Alexander Schmidt Podcast number 049, so we're getting near that big number 50. And again, we have joining us Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome, Wes. Good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And uh, this is, I think, the second time we've done one of our morning, our Saturday morning conversations. Out.
1: Is this is that true? Yeah, it sounds about right. At least sounds ab- before.
0: Yeah, at least once before. And it's funny because I was recently listening to the clinical psychologist. I know we both uh, favor uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. He was talking about his own daily schedule. He said that he generally gets up at the same time each day, sometime between six and eight, though my Fitbit would say that's not the same time. It it gets upset if I don't wake up within 15 minutes of when I say I'm going to. And so that's a big reminder often. But And then he uses that time in order to work. And I, I remember hearing that like two days ago and being extremely excited because on the conversation we recently had during the morning, we talked about our morning rituals and how much work we get done. Mm
1: -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. And in fact, one of the, one of the reasons that we might not have spoken today was out of concern for each other's morning time as well. That as if reading, reading or writing or producing, uh, producing content within our minds or within the world were, were the most important thing we could possibly do with our morning hours in order to set ourselves up, um, to set our days up, and thus our lives up in the best possible way.
1: Yeah, I was, I was thinking about maybe planting some trees this morning because it's kind of rainy here, and supposedly you're supposed to plant trees and stuff when it's kind of cool and, and damp. So, uh, But, you know, it looks like it's going to rain for a little while, so we're all we're in, we're in good shape.
0: Well, perhaps you will be planting trees, Mr. <laughs> Wesley Shantz. Perhaps you will be planting trees. All right. Well, um, uh, a couple, a couple things we wanted to talk about today. We both recently read. Fyodor dostoevsky's notes from the underground in fact i read that with a friend of mine daniel garcia who um i'm just going to keep bringing him up until he comes on this show i think
1: (laughs) Yeah, i feel like i've met this guy even though i've never seen or spoken with him yeah
0: i know i know he's a he's a wonderful guy he's a theologian he's uh, working to become practicing uh pastor and work or pastor excuse me not pastor uh though obviously related uh pastors work on pastures often um and um let me see uh and he's a theologian and so he comes at uh these texts from a slightly different angle for me where i would say i'm more like a psychologically minded educator Mm. um uh not really an official thing because i don't have an official degree from my perspective um Mm. because it's unique and uh but um I I asked if you would like to read Dostoevsky, too. And part of the reason I think that we're reading Dostoevsky is, for one, he's one of the great geniuses that's ever existed. For two, we have a concern for great books and for uh, understanding what makes uh, the greats great um, from our time at St. John's. And and I would say that that is a slight difference in our approach to literary criticism from, say, a conventional scholarly approach, Mm -hmm. rather than questioning why these individuals are considered – or. Rather than considering why they are put on lists that call them great Hmm. uh, and then sort of saying, no, there should be other people who are called great. We seem to be starting with the people who are traditionally called great in order to understand what greatness is so that we can then weigh in on that.
1: Yeah, it's a sort of I think it's like the difference between an heuristic approach to discussion versus Hmm. a philosophical approach to discussion, you know. Either you can sort of the person you're talking to as your opponent and you're trying to tear down their arguments all the time, or you can look at them as someone who has something that they are trying to express and trying to understand what that is and then sort of assessing it from there.
0: Right. I mean, I, it strikes me that what we're trying to do is essentially the same thing that the former Egyptians were trying to do. We are trying together to build some pyramids. I mean, it's easy to let them fall into disrepair and to disrepair and ruin much more difficult and time-consuming and energy-consuming and effort-consuming to, to build yeah. something. Um, and perhaps the scope of what it is we're building will add value to it, if, um, as, it as it comes to be. A- as the trees we plant start to grow, perhaps they will show themselves for what they are. Yeah. Um, but speaking of, uh, speaking of things that just won't grow or speaking of the opposite of that which is healthy, that which is poisonous – which oh, yeah. seems to be part of what notes from the underground seeks to teach us. Um, is that this character, this underground man, well, for, he seems utterly poisonous. He seems to live with his own delusions, create his own uh, false situations where he, he, he denies his own feeling and emotion and imposes or t- uh, despotically in a tyrannical way uh, uh, will obviate or subvert. I was a word you used in mm-hmm. conversation privately subvert his own, not only his own aims, but his own um, right to feel a certain way. It's Mm -hmm. as if because of his, a distinction he makes early on, I'm sorry just to jump into it like this, is between the uh, sort of active man, which he calls the stupid man. The stupid man who just does his job and seems to be perfectly happy about it. Whereas Dostoevsky himself, I imagine, uh, uh, being the underground man to some extent, or the underground man being some version of Dostoevsky is the more learned man, the one who is capable of abstraction of thinking, mm. but precisely because of his ability to abstract and think he can isolate himself from his own emotions and from society at large. And in fact, he says that he like a worm wants to crawl into his home and he can't have borders there. He can't have uh, roommates there because they'll see him for what he is. And in fact, when he's met by Liza, a name that will later be used in the Brothers Karamazov mm. for a love interest uh, that also doesn't seem to work out super well. Um, uh, he, he can't abide her presence there. It breaks the fantasy uh, that he has. And, and uh, well, at least at the end of this, the text for Notes from the Underground, it seems to be the idea that um, Dostoevsky, very similar to what Tolstoy says in his diaries, is that because he has had the leisure to do more learning and is not sort of oppressed by environmental considerations or 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 economic circumstances into brutal uh labor constantly that it 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 has done him no good this idleness this ability to think has 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 made him deracinated rootless he's like floating above the air and in floating it's as if he's become not an angel but
1: a demon (laughs) yeah he well, so it's really uh, it's funny then that he's uh, the the underground man, right? He's <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he's, he's uh he's he's not so much um, rooted as as entombed or something like that. There, yes, indeed. yeah, entombed. I think is perfectly oh way
0: good way to put it. Entombed as in isolate, as in I iced iced off from others, like Lucifer and Dante's Inferno. Uh-huh. It is his own. It is his own, and so. So, uh, Lucifer and Dante's Inferno, not to ruin it for anybody, is encased within ice, which is a mixture of his tears, which have frozen due to his impotent beating of his wings, which keep him in his own uh, space, which are mixed with the blood of the sinners whose betrayal he cannot comprehend or digest. And so he simply ruminates or uh, masticates on them all day choose on them without ever figuring it out and that strikes me as exactly what this underground man does he ruminates he thinks about uh uh that which he cannot understand which happens often to be his own situation within the world and why people do not recognize him as the great person he is constantly brings up and read books but can't live life and well that that gets home for uh certainly me uh, um perhaps also for you uh um Um, and, uh, certainly for Dostoevsky as well, um, suggesting that you can't just read the books, which well, the, we, we could also remind our, many of our fellow St. John's graduates of that too. Uh, if, if they do still read that is, um, and
1: and so carve out the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's true. That's true. Very much true. Like exercise, like all good things take time you need to carve out consciously. Right. And, uh, like a good morning conversation like this. Um, and I do have a nice cup of coffee next to me i hope you have some delightful tea or something like that i recall you were not a coffee drinker yeah Uh, yeah
1: uh i these days um you know it's 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 grown on me I, i mostly like the smell of it honestly but yeah yes good well good
0: good 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 and so back to the lucifer reference it is lucifer's own crying Mm-hmm. Well, I imagine, and this is a bit speculative. I imagine that what he's crying about is the nobility of himself and the injustice of his fall, and he cannot understand why he was betrayed by God. That's to apply slightly uh, Miltonian reading of Dante. I would mm-hmm. say there that the injustice that is making Lucifer cry is the injustice of the supreme being, him being cast down into hell, and that he just can't comprehend he just can't comprehend that. And what's incredible is that it is precisely that which Dante has to comprehend in order to get out of hell, suggesting that what is the one thing that a human can do that a celestial being could not recognize
1: yeah. the evil within ourselves? The, the, um, the, the, idea that the tears, yeah, are not repentant tears, but are sort of self aggrandizing and, uh, you know, deceit self-deceiving. I think that connects really well because we do see Underground Man uh, crying quite a quite a bit. I think several in times. <laughs> yeah, They're always like they're always these kind of bitter, um, you know, self, re- uh, not not repentant or not really um, feeling with somebody else or any of those kinds of good tears that you might imagine. They're indulgent. they yeah, exactly. They're they're sentimental. <laughs> There's uh, self self-hating, self-loathing, uh, and he has the opportunity over and over again. He's given the opportunity to to make it right, you know, to to try to open up to somebody or do the right thing, or yeah. And and he <laughs> and he just he undercuts himself uh, every step of the way. Um, I, I would agree that that um, the 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 story with with Liza is is probably the the strongest example of that. Um, It comes in part two, but
0: yeah. Right, and uh, you know, it's interesting because just like Satan in Paradise, or not Paradise Lost, excuse me, in the Inferno. Mm -hmm. um, Sorry, I'm I'm thinking about Paradise Lost because I'm teaching it right now. In the Inferno, Satan has done exactly what he wants. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, he's turned himself into a statue to his own virtue. (laughs) Except for the thing is, there's a major contrast between what is seen within what he sees because he of course thinks he's God and what we see, which is a pathetic, bleeding, frozen, impotent mess. And that is exactly, I would say what the underground man, also uh, the dissonance that he experiences between his environment and his internal representation of himself. He thinks that he is. he seems to And this is to bring up the Grail legend by um, Emma Jung and uh, Marie-Louise von Franz. Uh, Something we talked about last night in preparation for this conversation was uh, the Grail quest and how a knight on first becoming even just a squire is often inflated. His ego becomes inflated by the goal of his quest. Rather, Rather than being extraordinarily humble as a squire, being very low on the pecking order and the dominance hierarchy of that world, he becomes... He, he immediately effect, takes on the personality or the characteristics of the hero who has already defeated the dragon and won the treasure hard to attain. And so he, he takes heirs that he does not yet deserve. And in fact, you wouldn't want to be here. Yeah, I don't think the point of becoming a knight is simply to act as if you have already won the quest the entire time you are on the quest, but yeah. rather to endure the difficult suffering and striving which go and, and doubt yeah. and hope which go hand in hand with being on such a quest and so this character hasn't even planted the trees yet and he's expecting everybody around him to be commenting on how wonderful the shade is from their branches <laughs> <laughs> and and he can't tell why nobody else can tell why he's why does everybody not see how great he is and the reason is that whatever greatness he has within him and perhaps this is Dostoevsky coming through here mm-hmm. uh has not yet been expressed in the world right and the only way for other people to see the benefit and the the value of that which you can create is by actually creating it and subjecting it to uh scrutiny um
1: sure sure it's it seems like he's you know, deeply ashamed of this as well. And yet, yeah, yes, a, a, of course and yet gets caught in that, caught in that kind of that vicious cycle um, rather than being able to, well, you know, again, he has opportunities and presumably he will keep having opportunities to, to really connect with another person, to break out of the cycle, to get out of his, his basement essentially. <laughs> and
0: yeah. And he world. does essentially
1: live in a basement alone
0: and you find out that even though
1: he's poor, he could
0: make more money if he had boarders, if he yeah. had other renters there um, and then he projects onto his old his old manservant who whose name is popping out of my head for the moment considering him arrogant and of such a poor quality that he 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 must be paid and that that's uh, incredible his name's Apollon um, so it's an it apollo, is Apollon Apollo yes name. It's, it's kind of funny it's an apollo name yeah and uh, and uh, ap- apolomy means to destroy in greek
1: um, oh, okay. and
0: I, I don't know whether I don't know whether uh, uh, Dostoevsky knew Greek. He he might have. I know Tolstoy learned it later in his life, uh, at something like forty-three. And so, but obviously Dostoevsky is aware of what that name might mean, uh, because well, and you know, if we were to to do something with that, I, I think he might suggest that what Apollon does is destroy the conceptions or the misconceptions which the underground man has about himself. Yeah, he is he is a reminder of how small this man is. And in fact, that seems to be why the underground man can, uh, can, can suffer his existence Um, because he is the, because of his low rank, he is the only person allowed to see just how feeble and decrepit and impoverished the underground man actually is. Um, But but something else interesting, just to go back to a point we mentioned earlier about living within your head and not reaping the benefits of the things you don't do, is, is the fact that the underground man, he, he, he invites himself to a party, yeah, a party for one of his old school friends named Sverkov, who is a successful, strong, ruddy man. Everything that the underground man is not, but wishes himself to be, but in wishing himself to be, resentfully claims that he doesn't wish to be and that he is uh, uh, contemptuously above though it is of course himself who tries to invite himself to the party of Sverkov
1: and yeah, to the company of him. He sort of, he sort of like tricks himself into doing it too. It's like, he's not sure why he's doing it. And yet he yes! finds himself ending up at this situation where he, he feels like he's got to go or else he'll lose face, you know, it's, it's really funny. And even when he does go there, he spends
0: two hours away from the individuals who are ignoring him <laughs> to their great <laughs> pleasure while yeah. he just sits over there imagining that he's committing some great insult to them, he attempts to to throw down a duel and gets laughed in his faith, face like when Penthesilea claims that she could fight against Achilleus when Ajax and, uh, the, greater and uh, mm. the greater and Achilleus, or Ias the greater and Achilleus, according to Quintus of Smyrna, they laugh at her. And it's like, these men, they don't take him seriously because even though he might have been equal, on equal footing or superior footing to them while at school, perhaps he outperformed them or read more books than they did, they have been working in the world in order to get real results mm-hmm. outside of their minds. whereas he right. seems to have been stewing within himself. In fact, it reminds me of a quote from Heraclitus um, from his fragments, where he says, "Even even the posset, which is some sort of Greek soup, hmm. grows, grows, grows uh, stale if you don't, if you don't turn it." Like, Mm -hmm. you know, a creek without a source of water. Mm -hmm. It just, it gets brackish. It gets disgusting. And that seems to be what happens with one's thoughts as well. Even if they start off beautiful and angelic and capable of doing good, if you just leave them in your head, they're like fallen angels and they will tear you down with them Mm -hmm. if you don't Mm -hmm. get rid of them. Uh, Or, you know, it's sort of like uh, thoughts are to... A, a man or a woman what a baby is uh, to a woman in terms of pregnancy. Yeah. Once it's time for the baby to be had, you gotta have the baby or all of a sudden it's like a cancer inside of you. It does not belong there anymore. You're going to die, it's going to die. It's going to take you down with it. Hmm. You can't get it out. You better have that C-section or whatever needs to happen. Same thing with thoughts and I think that this is important because it is just as important from seeing the trajectory of this person's life. That you get your thoughts out, that you enact them, that you embody them, that you incarnate them, that you write them, that you speak them, otherwise that which was was uh, healing potentially as an alexipharmic takes on its opposite aspect as a poison
1: within you that slowly drains the life out of you yeah, alexipharmic i didn 't um I had to look it up. Uh, having the quality or nature of an antidote to poison is that yes. accurate okay yes but the, yes, the, but yes, the antidote yes. is potentially just as dangerous as the poison is what you're saying right right the old the old quote is that pharmacon from greek
0: means both antidote and poison depending i mean depending on who who administers it and who receives it and, un, and the conditions under which they receive it right like so if you're given morphine after your arm gets blown off that's an antidote. Well, yeah. not an antidote, but it is something that will keep the pain o- d- away. Yeah. To say you've lost your coal mining job and you're taking opium every day or some version of it and slowly withering poison.
1: Um, so that makes me want to ask, like, who is this book for, really? Like, because that's something I worry about a bit as as a teacher, as a reader of these books. It's sort of like, OK, so what's the appropriate occasion on which to read them what's the right age or what's the right time in your life when you um are ready to read this book but it's enough beyond where you're at that you're going to you know learn something from it you're not going to be overwhelmed by it it's not going to twist you in some you know negative way um yeah yeah Um, that's a a fantastic question i
0: i would say so, old Mr. Ben Tanzi, who I'm going to have to have on this show <laughs> soon, um, he and I used to, make a, we used to make a comparison to Hogwarts and Harry Potter World <laughs> and say that amongst the great books, there are certain thinkers who should be in, in the uh, restricted section of the library. That because of their dark power, like Nietzsche and Dostoevsky, you probably shouldn't read them until you are yourself a powerful wizard or a, a well-studied student. you might say uh, somebody aware of the tradition uh, that they are reacting to and part of. And I would say that somebody in their early twenties would probably be best, but also with a teacher in a seminar group, precisely because what seems to be being addressed here is the, what is going to happen to the intellectual leisure class, Mm -hmm. the people who are not necessarily wealthy, but can now fill their heads with such grand ideas that perhaps they might be pulled away from activity in the world in order to just maintain this Edenic uh, uh, perfect place within themselves where um, where the world as drama exists perfectly without the, the unnecessary and uh, uncalled for and uh, disruptive actual events of life. In yeah. fact, you, I think you see that come through a bit near the end in The Underground Man uh, during the uh, denouement with Liza, mm-hmm. he keeps not knowing what to do while she's there and wishing she were gone. Once once the moment has finally arisen in which he must act and put his principles to the test, he's he's not up to the task. He, he's, right. he, he would rather not be there at all. He would rather not exist. And that strikes me as being possessed by one's thinking to such an extent that you have to play out a role within your mind at the expense of playing out a role within the world and the actual social drama at large. So you assume in your little cave or underground that you are the hero and that nobody else understands outside. And so you must be the hero alone to yourself against the dragons only you can see. Um, and, And in so doing, the actions and great achievements of your life will also go unseen because you are fighting against invisible dragons, which only exist to you. And actually you're not fighting them. You're being consumed by them. I would right. say that this character is sort of the embodiment of being, having all your good thoughts and feeling sucked up by a Dementor. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Prison. It's a prison of his own creation. It, it is a prison of his own creation. And, and, and the worst thing about it, as, as you continually say, is that, that he has Opportunities to make amends, mm-hmm. to to see himself for what he is, and and each time, and Dostoevsky is such a genius at this. Each time he has a moment where we as readers long for him to see himself for what he is and to make that Augustinian turn in his confession that that and 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 just deny all that he's been before and become what he's supposed to be. He he just he refuses. <laughs> he yeah. he refuses to open his eyes. Uh, And and as if he pleads and confesses uh, in order to justify what it is he is so that he can remain what he is rather than in order to see himself for what he has been and to improve and become something uh, to become something worth being, frankly speaking.
1: Yeah, it seems like there's an element here of him being ultimately sort of afraid that in in going ahead and trying to become something real in, you know, in the actual world. He'll have to give up these beautiful dreams and these ideas that he's so fond of turning over and over. He'll give up all those things that he, you know, that are his, that are what he is. And he won't actually achieve the success that he has dreamed of for so long. So there's this kind of element of, of a, a, a ultimately like a, a lack of, of trust. of, uh, of Right. A of letting confidence. go that he won't do. Yeah. And and it's that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, so it's like like, um, uh, it seems like something that um, as a as a culture, we can sort of, I think, see ourselves in this as well, where we've um, we've got these beautiful dreams and uh, you might, you know, think of the American dream here. I don't know what the corresponding concept would be precisely in in Russia or something but but we we speak about that right we speak about these kind of collective um, aspirations of 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 a culture Um, and we're very we're very much uh, kind of interrogating them at this point in our history so I think it's interesting because you can see that as a uh, as in a way um, like what underground man is doing right but in a way opposite to what he's doing where our, mm-hmm. our culture has has in some ways lost faith in the dream, and that doesn't seem to be quite the right approach either. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't know. That's a little bit no. muddled, but I I feel like no no
0: no. There, the the thing I love about talking to you, Wes, and I hope I hope I can only hope this is what you like about talking to me, is that when you say things, all sorts of ideas pop into my head, and so <laughs> yeah. it's wonderful. So talking to you is like reading a good book. Um. <laughs> But the first thing is that it strikes me as Edenic. Hmm. This uh, underground man is not willing to give up his preconceptions of himself in order to delve into the world where suffering and work exists. Hmm. He's not willing. He doesn't have the faith, like you said, the trust in himself and in the world Uh, in in, in order to give up what he thinks he is in order to become what he actually is because he thinks all the fools around him won't understand everything that he's he's done and everything he's capable of. And so why even do it at all? Uh-huh. Uh, which is such a deeply nihilistic and pessimistic and cynical way of looking at the world that it, it it's incredible. It's like great people create things that help the most amount of people. That's the fact. That's the fact. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, axiomatic. Say. It's axiomatic, right. That is what determines whether we call them great or not. And of course, there seems to be some element of, Ability to have made it in a unique way that others could not have embodied, mm-hmm. which seems to be true by the fact of how few great things there are. But also, um, what, <clears throat> how how to say it exactly? It seems that he is unwilling to leave his Edenic state of naivete, where he assumes, in the presence of God, which is what Eden is there, and therefore his thoughts that he. Um, if he leaves there, the world will somehow tarnish his ideas. It, it's essentially a childish Peter Pan perspective that he's unwilling to grow up to leave Never Never Land. And that makes me want to connect that to you said uh, the Russian situation then, as opposed to, say, our situation. So I'm not a great 19th century Russian scholar, but I do have some insight into what their situation was. Okay. Their elite were speaking French and were quickly being civilized during a major. Indu- uh, Revolutionary period. In fact, in the early 20th century, they would actually go through a revolution and um, and and get rid of effectively their medieval czarist system and impose, uh, you know, the Soviet system. Um, and so they were rapidly changing culturally at the time that Dostoevsky is writing. Um, okay. And there was a major shift from, say, like peasant agrarian culture to all of a sudden there are these. Young men, and you see this in Dostoevsky's writing, in Raskolnikov, and in um, uh, 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 not Alyosha, but his brother, in Ivan. And, uh, Dimitri, Ivan, Dimitri. and yeah, a, Ivan, Ivan, and brothers Karamazov of this class of young intellectual, who is, who is estranged from his cultural foundation and heritage, and therefore is estranged from the goal of his yeah. existence, the ideal that he wishes to bring about, because he feels alien within his own land and i would say that that seems to be what has happened to so many college educated young people today there are so many people with their ideas filled with these conceptions of eden and how great they can be especially with the self-esteem movement Mm -hmm. and yet because the world is imperfect and not inviting them because the world is also very hard and competitive to just be the top and best person who exists without having accomplished anything we have we have a, a generation of sour young people yeah. uh effectively it's like it's like we have so much chaff and no no wheat per, precisely not because of natural proclivities but because of lack of conscious willingness to suffer what it takes to produce something good in the world mm-hmm. and the excuses because we don't know what it is we should create but i think the answer should be just start making good things rather than criticizing all the things which do currently exist
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's a bit, I mean, uh, yeah go ahead no no go on sorry sorry, sorry. Oh, no it's it's a bit like it's a bit like his approach to um to lisa and her her offer of um what uh, her her, yeah, her her actual like interest in him um where he even though
0: he's so flawed when he admitted himself to her so he actually does admit himself to her all his intentions exactly why he spoke to her and belittled her in such a crushing and terrible way and yeah. even after saying all of that she comes over to hug him yeah. and accepts him and I, I you know i know you have a fiance and i've had girlfriends in the past i've i've had a very similar moment uh-huh. In, 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 in my time and in it, with that moment luckily because many moments that this man has had I've also had that are totally unrepentant and terrible and I've had to really chew on that mm-hmm. um, it's like in that moment you can just see what the power of affection and love for humans have for each other is because it is precisely in him admitting how terrible he is that a moment of transformation takes place <sighs> it's a moment of perspective of actual observation. It's like the difference between Jesus and Lucifer. Lucifer wanting to be the best does all the worst things, but it is the recognition of one's own finitude, uh, the sort of consciousness that comes about uh, from the God man, you might say um, the consciousness of one's own finitude of one's own sin. That makes one transcendent for Uh, a moment
1: and makes one truly lovable that's uh it's it's so the moment in um in crime and punishment when you you see this recapitulated between Raskolnikov and Sonia in in that in that book he is in her room um rather than she being in his like you see here with underground man but anyway they're in this little room and she's uh reading um the story of Lazarus and so Mm. you you have, have the same kind of moment right you have a similar um, couple of characters, you know, one this uh, very intelligent but very bitter young man, um, and then the woman who's um, you know of good heart and uh, wounded and suffering, and and they come together and you have the same kind of moment. And in that in that story, of course, the the outcome is a bit different, right? Raskolnikov is still um, able to sort of grab onto uh, that that branch that's offered to him. Whereas in this story, I mean, I guess the point of this story <laughs> notes from underground is that he, didn't, you know, he's, he fails to, he can't let himself see himself as, as flawed enough to, to need that kind of help.
0: That's right. And, and the problem with that is that in making that recognition and then accepting connection to another person based on the fact that one is imperfect, then, then one sacrifices one's former idea of oneself. In order to be what one actually is, and to become what you can be, uh, one sort of lets the dead bury the dead, or one one restores or or, or replaces the old blind king with perspective, something that can see now. Yeah. Um, and and so the the prop or what I would say, I think the thesis of the Underground Man is is that it's not so much a portrayal of a person, so much as the life of an idea. And the worst possible idea, the, the life of malevolence or malice or the yeah. devil and how it can exist through a person and possess a person. And if you were to say, that sounds crazy, Alex, I would say, well, you know, Dostoevsky does actually have a work called The Devils, <laughs> which is also called The Possessed. The possessed. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, still getting over a cold. And um, the morning is said to be the worst time, which which does not accord well with our productive mornings. <laughs> um and so so i think that the reason why this particular character never ever repents is because precisely the point of this text is to portray what the devil is embodied in a young man
1: yeah Um, the book opens i mean i am a sick man i am a wicked man (laughs) yes what is the sickness what is the wickedness
0: and you know where do those adjectives come from well they come from the thoughts which which plague us which possess us which keep us from life which suck the life out of us precisely through sucking the time and energy we would devote to endeavors that might improve things around us or have some act or bear some actual fruit. Uh, Instead, it keeps us solitary alone, unmoving uh, feeding on our own feeding on our own imaginations about what the world should be in a solipsistic manner rather than actually uh, substantially eating some substantial food by acting within the world and seeing what we're actually truly made of Um, is
1: I guess, okay. The, uh, the other side of this seems to be um, what he has, what he has rejected or something like that, or um, the way you're speaking about it here, it's, it's like uh, you you brought up Augustine and the confessions. And, and like I said, in crime and punishment, the the emblem for this seems to be the gospel stories. Right. And so Mm -hmm. is that, I guess I'm curious how how much that is uh, literally the case like to get out of this kind of situation you literally have to convert to some kind of religion or is that more metaphorically the case that you know insofar as you've got this devil which is gnawing at you you need to um, make some kind of uh, uh, break with um, with those ideas and you can do this through um, poetry or you can do this through some, or some other music you know some other thing besides religion um, yes I'm, I'm yes how, how how much it has to be a kind of religious conversion how much it could be I don't know some other sort of um, transformation of, this, of all right. this all right
0: well that that's perfect I, I can answer I would say that it, it operates on both levels and I can answer both of them and so I'm probably going to lose my train of thought trying to go after this. So please, please be ready to remind me when I do, uh, when I go out on one of these long branches. But on the, um, to address the latter first, I would say yes. Insofar, c- continuing the metaphor we started earlier, where we suggested that that which is a thought, which is an angel at first in your head and not being embodied or enacted in the appropriate way at the appropriate time becomes a devil and drags you down with it insofar as you don't express it. That seems obviously true. When you express an idea and try and give it form and have to deal with the imperfections of your skill, the perception of others, and also uh, the media on which you act, whether that be a sports field or painting or or poetry or music, um, then you not only refine yourself by inculcating the skills necessary to create what it is you're trying to create, but you also you modify and improve the ideal by bringing it into the world, which is I think the point of the interplay between Beatrice, uh, wisdom, and and Dante. As he continually goes up heaven, every time he learns something new, she becomes more beautiful, mm-hmm. which means that as he actively pursues the ideal, the ideal becomes refined by his ability to see it in more beautiful ways. And that's precisely the problem with this here. If an ideal stays vague, you stay vague. Yeah. Be, uh, because you don't do that which is necessary in order to refine and articulate yourself as you refine and articulate your governing idea. Now, to your second, or to your former point, to your original point about do you have to have a callback to traditional religion? Not necessarily, but I do think that that is what is at play here for Dostoevsky and the Underground Man. Because of the rational enlightenment that has so quickly overtaken Russian culture at that moment, they are deracinated. They are pulled away from their traditional roots, which are grounded in Greek or in Russian Orthodox Christian values. And so those values, which have been developed and transmitted over, well, Peterson suggests 150,000 years, in you know, <laughs> uh, more or less, um, it's very hard to just replace them. And in fact, we, we can see that coming through in the works of Nietzsche, and Dostoevsky it's like okay okay we're all rational and enlightened now what do we do and and it's like so now we don't be good to others and not covet each other's wives and things like that and it's like well we we try all this sort of stuff and and then we find that the Iliad is very much right about what happens when you do that sort of thing and and so
1: we see that they're
0: actually
1: yeah say say that one more time I'm sorry That that human nature has not changed as quickly as our ideas about it. Yeah,
0: precisely. And just because we might not have represented human nature scientifically because we did not yet have that method does not mean that we did not procedurally observe Mm. that human nature through our actions, which I think is what is shown by the idea that Moses spent all day judging for several years and then climbed a mountain, attained a higher perspective, and then wrote the laws based on how people acted. It's like These values, yes, it is true we did not come to them in the way that scientific empiricism uh, would have asked us using the specific method and writing out our procedures and this and that. But but actually, we kind of did just in a more sort of naive or primitive way through our poetry and art and literature and song. Hmm. We're constantly telling each other what it is we've observed. We just are in a middle point right now where we're not sophisticated enough to understand what it is. Our art has been telling us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That seems, that seems really, I think, uh, embraces the, the, uh, the problem that I think Dostoevsky is sketching out here. Um, And it seems right to me that this sort of um, sketch of the issue would come in Earlier in his in his work, and then later he has works like *Crime and Punishment* and *Brothers Ke- Karamazov*, which provide not only the the problem, so to speak, but also a kind of tentative um, attempt at a solution as well. Um, yes, yeah. Yeah. yes, it... the 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 religious element here, I think it's it's very interesting to to look at how uh, it is. It is the sort of thing that you can you can try to throw out um it's which which poet is it horace or somebody who's like you can throw nature out with the pitchfork but then there she is or something like that yes I mean, yes it's it precisely it's it's i think yeah i think it's it's the sort of thing that um as much as the the intellect would try to assert itself as the uh essence of human nature i mean you see this as far back as uh, Plato and Socrates, right? But that there's still this this kind of component of being connected with a tradition, which is just as as necessary. Um, and that
0: well, insofar yeah. as we don't know our tradition, we don't even know who we are in the world. We don't know our place. I apologize for interrupting, oh, yeah. but I mean a, qu- a question that seems more and more real to me. And I don't ask this in any way spuriously because I think that the answer to cynicism is seriousness, not. Uh, not um, irony, yeah. uh, uh, and that's I would I would say precisely that can be proven by the fact that young, uneducated people can be ironic, mm-hmm. and yet it it is often the more the more uh, the people with the higher integrity who can be serious and sincere, mm-hmm. uh, and integrity takes time to develop. I would say, um, um, though, of course, I'm still just learning that. Um but um Oh
1: I'm sorry, what was I saying? I went off on that,
0: that foolish branch. Like no, usual. There,
1: there's, there's, I I guess it's a kind of a question about the role of religious tradition yes. with respect to the intelligence or the intellect. Yes, so, How this so my question be? is this is if if food if we don't
0: doubt the value of food which has been something that we have always needed insofar as we have been mammals, and even long before that, why would we doubt the value of religion, which has ex- coexisted at least as far as we know, as far back as our nearest ancestors, uh, in terms of cave paintings, the representations of art? It's like if there is a traditional structure which has existed since effectively the dawn of time, okay. uh why? Why is our first assumption that it does not matter, <laughs> right. rather rather than it does? And I mean, I, 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 what's going on in the back of my head is that that quote or that that word, that two words from the Lord's Prayer in Latin, uh, you know what we generally translate as "Give us today our daily bread." Well, uh, in the Latin, the word is super substantial, um, super substantibilis, as in like the. Um, the even more than substantive substance that we eat. And the idea is the abstraction on substance. If a regular substance is food, which keeps us alive, hmm. this is the sort of story or the actions within your day that keep you moving forward, that give you a reason to exist. And so it's as if we're like, we, we have become sort of hedonistic and decadent, as Camille Paglia would say, and we believe more and more in eating good food and having good technology and less and less in living good lives and pursuing the telos of being a human. Um, it's as if we, our intellect has sawed off the branch on which it, it exists. It's, it right. says, oh, now that I realize that I'm conscious and rational and can create things in this world, I'm going to deny the most important aspect of existence and then just exist uh, uh, eating this lesser food. You might say living these lesser stories. And I would say that's also the point of Westworld where uh, one of the points made about it is that these sort of like God creator figures, these demiurgic figures, Robert Ford and his um, partner Arnold, they talk about how they created two paths in the world. They create all these narratives where people could be heroes. Mm -hmm. And yet, do you know what sort of narratives everybody lived out instead? Hmm. Well, the ones where they just rape and pillage and where they give into their baser instincts. Uh, everybody chose to be villains and that strikes me as exactly what the choice is for humans and just because we we claim with our rational enlightenment that no such choice exists well it's like well we still live in the world in which that choice does exist it doesn't make it not exist and when you choose to live like the underground man resentfully cynically not offering anything you feel awful (laughs) all the time which is direct evidence I would say from your nervous system uh, and, and the lower parts of your brain the amygdala and the hippocampus that you, you're not doing the right thing, which is yeah. not something that you can control as well. Um, it's not, that is not um, mitigated by your, you know, your, your, uh dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Right. That comes from deeper parts of the brain that win. Uh, so Elkanen Goldberg and Peterson uh, say, and Yak Pinsap. Um, So it's, so in denying that we are connected to some tradition, in denying that religion has some sort of uh, food that it has to offer to us, it seems as if we are denying to ourselves the better path of life.
1: Yeah, and Uh, it seems to be out of pride, right? Intellectual pride or just sort of self-aggrandizing.
0: Right, it's because we figured out something was not stated in the best possible way, we then suggest that it doesn't exist. (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) <laughs> it has no hold on uh, Everything is permitted, as Ivan would say. That, that's right, and that's 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 something
0: that I'm actually talking about with my high school sophomores right now. As we talk about Milton in the context of the Scientific Revolution, I say, well, students, you got to understand that once uh, once Copernicus overturns Ptolemy and Galileo comes around with his telescope, you got to mm-hmm. understand that how even the universe was conceptualized changed. We are all bothered by the fact in our generation that Pluto is no longer a planet. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Imagine yeah. figuring out that the Earth is not the center of the universe,
1: right.
0: but actually just a little planet that goes around this little star and there are a bunch of other ones that exist. It's like, that. well, that, of course, people became cynical immediately uh, based on that um, or as the, uh, as the fall out of that. But, but the problem is, it's like, okay, when you figure out how you looked at the world was wrong, What is your immediate inclination? Well, A, here's the worst way you can, here's the worst thought you can jump to. Because I was wrong, there's no such thing as right. And therefore, I'm not going to pursue a more correct solution to the problem. And it's like, no, wrong. If you don't have the answer to how things are and why you should exist, you don't sit there and just uh, cynically assume you're right that nothing is right. You have to go search. You have to be the exploratory hero. You have to figure it out. That actually gives you something to do with your time. It can make your life meaningful. And and in fact, you can do one of the greatest things for other people. You can search with them and therefore give them meaning. And what if you find something? What if you find something that is a better statement of why we should live and how we should live and where we exist in the universe? I mean, it's sort of like a a positive version of Pascal's wager. It's like- It's like if – and also William James's uh, pragmatic statement that if one side of an army believes that it fights on the side of justice and another army does not, well, the army that believes it has justice on its side will win. And he may have been yeah. thinking about the Achaeans versus the Trojans huh. there. And it seems if something has practical positive benefits, what is more real than that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I – that seems to be I,
1: what doctors understand. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's sort of getting back to the sense of having some kind of overarching narrative for your, um, for your, for your sort of intellectual frameworks about the way the world is. That there has to be a slightly, a slightly more all-encompassing mythological or religious or whatever you want to say traditional framework within which you sort of can can be an individual and well you don't want to be the god and so i think this comes out at the end of notes
0: from the underground you don't want to be the god that subjugates all in fact that's something that the underground man explicitly mentions once he had subjugated liza he didn't know what to do it's like yes if you subjugate everybody around you like a super tyrant like the devil then what do you do with yourself what does the devil do down in hell well he cries constantly probably about how none down there can see him for all the glory he has and uh, about being surrounded by such terrible kinsfolk uh, who can't appreciate him. Um, It's like, uh, uh, yeah, well, exactly. Um, Well, what, what would be better than that? Well, it's like, well, what about playing a game with people in a Piagetian sense that could be sustained? Mm -hmm. What about not attempting to subject the people around you? Uh, Because, once you have done that, or once, and you can see the totalitarian urge in here, once you have subjected everybody, or once you have killed everybody, and if you think this all the way through, what do you do with yourself? Well, nothing, that's not good. That, that seems absolutely hellish. It's like, okay, well, yeah, that is hell, right? I mean, that, that's, that's it. That is the goal of totalitarianism. That is the goal of that sort of pride. It's like, well, if you can give up that sort of pride, that desire to be the god of the game then what could you do? It it reminds me of an, well, you could play the game and you could be really happy for the fact that you're not a god and that you play the game and it's a multiplayer game, which is interesting because so many people today will play massive multiplayer games showing that they both love the hero's journey and being around other people uh, and pursuing goals. It's like, okay, well, let's just do that not simply in the video game world while recognizing that this is clearly a principle of human existence because you'll pay money. To do that. And time, and endless time. <laughs> endless time. That's right. That's right. Playing
1: this game.
0: And it, and it's like those games alone, and, and the fact that there are infinite hero movies out right now, like Infinity War, uh, right. in, insist, uh, suggesting that there is always a war between good and evil going on within the human heart and within the human world. It's like the war, the game is always ongoing. It only stops when you stop, or rather, it doesn't stop when you stop. Uh, it actually continues to go and actually time does continue to pass regardless of what, uh, uh, regardless of what hole one puts oneself in (laughs) time does pass and things do change. Um, And so, well, and I, and I forgot exactly the thread back to your question, like usual, I apologize for that. But, um, but the, I, the idea seems to be that in becoming deflated and humbling oneself in order just to be a player within the great game, that's how you one can live a good life where one is not responsible for everything, where everybody around one does not have to act like a set piece in his or her place because they have consciousness, can act however they please. And that's part of the the brilliance and the, the, the wonderful uniqueness of one's own existence. What's yeah. interesting is that people seem to think that they seem to want to be the most unique thing that has ever existed, but then the moment... Everything happens around them, and I could use the, the Underground Man as an example for this. Anytime anything unexpected or against his ideal pers- his idealization of life in his mind, anything that happens outside of that in the world, which therefore makes the situation actually unique, upsets him. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which is which is absurd because uh, in order to be unique, your life can't simply go according to type. It has to. There has to be some new element to it. Something that, uh, some ornateness or flourish that makes it different from everything else. Like you could be a sword, but you have a different sort of art or level of skill applied to the art on your sheath or your handle or something like that. In that, So you can embody a type and also be individual. Um, and that seems to be the, uh, a trouble. <sighs> that seems to be the trouble that this underground man has he hmm, he can't bridge the gap between ideal or he refuses to bridge the gap between ideal and embodiment
1: the uh yeah the last the last passage in part one which transitions into part two um he's speaking about this sort of the point he's come to is where he's like writing this story so we're sort of like looking over his shoulder as he writes the story that we're reading And he sort of like, seems to sort of notice that this is uh, maybe like the thing that he should be doing, right? This is the kind of work that he's able to actually engage in. And, and there's this interesting, like, combination of that coming out from within him from his memories, he's like working through this stuff. But also, it's like the wet snow that he sees um, that he that is coming from outside of him, right? It's like, this attempt, it seems like, by the world to sort of back to him to 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 um, reconnect with him, and that wet snow is what leads him to write about the kind of like we said the the central element of the story, his meeting with with Liza, um, that's brought on by a kind of natural uh, image, um, and and that image of the snow. Uh, I think, I think it's one that. Um, connects really nicely with with this idea because the snow on the one hand covers and unifies things makes them look alike makes mm. them look um, all, all the same shade and and sort of crystalline but on the other hand it brings out the um, the structure of things if you see snow on a tree I think this comes from my Antonia. there's a passage where the narrator is looking at the the city in this in the snow in the winter and he's and he notices how how it individualizes and brings out the sort of the structure of the things that are otherwise you take for granted. You know, the houses, when they're glowing with light under the snow, they they look different than than they normally would. And you sort of see them for the first time. And so I find I find that to be a really beautiful image. Yes. One that one that we're invited to sort of appreciate, whereas the narrator is sort of like spitefully like, oh, this makes me think of this awful thing. You know, so it's really, Great. It's really I it's really quite Quite beautifully constructed, I think, this story. I think it's just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say three things based on
0: that. The first thing is just to emphasize that falling snow is an apex level, beautiful experience. When Antonor describes the words of Odysseus having come with Menelaus to demand Helen back at the beginning of the Trojan War, he describes Odysseus's words as having been as beautiful as falling snow.
1: Ah, that's great. Uh,
0: the second thing I would say is that also you have the capacity within. Falling snow, and I'm thinking here of uh, uh, a very similar thing said by Roy Beattie, the replicant who dies at the end of um, uh, Blade Runner, when he says, uh, "All these memories I have, they will, they will fade, they will fade just as tears into the rain." Well, it, when snow has fallen, you can leave your imprint in the snow, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. it will eventually disappear over time. But it might offer someone help close in time to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is far more important, I would say, and perhaps meaningfully say, than offering help to everybody at all times, <laughs> right. which seems to be the what keeps people from doing things. Well, what's it going to matter in 10,000 years? It's like, yeah. well, that's not how you live your life. That's like, uh, That is an inappropriate level of analysis. But I would also add this, and this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit, about just the experience of reading books. And of Mm -hmm. sharing experiences, quite against the postmodern claim, Um, which is falling snow seems to be a universal experience and certainly would be to a Russian like Dostoevsky. (laughs) So everybody experiences seeing that. And so how I feel that comment also might reflect is that everybody experiences what this underground man experiences, this bitterness and resentment in the same Way And if we can recognize that fact, and I would say that the religious uh, traditions as agglomerations of stories that apply not just to one person, but to all people, because they are themselves agglomerations of experiences used to help us understand what it is we are and why we live, um, that um, it is not, we do not prove our uniqueness by standing apart. And by denying the presence of the snow Mm. or the resentment or the envy, but in consciously recognizing that we are subject to it and in recognizing we are subject to it and submitting to that idea, we we then liberate ourselves from it. We become more than just a subject, like the Hegelian uh, master-slave dialectic. And and we're like Paul and uh, Philemon talking about Uh, How we we willfully subject ourselves, uh, he would say, to Christ, um, uh, to an idea, to to the conscious suffering of the conditions of life, that you become more than a slave. Um, And that strikes me as true. We cannot help but perceive the world in the same way as those around us, but we can choose to, we can choose how we react to the world and how we act in the world and how we, conduct ourselves whether we do so with dignity with integrity uh even though the world is so full of obstacles and suffering and and, i mean nobody plays a video game and thinks gosh look at this terrible place all these koopas around and venus fly traps ready to eat you why doesn't somebody clean this up no what you do is you kill all of that you change the world for the better and you're like wow this is good fun it's like exactly exactly (laughs) yeah
1: yeah I like, I like that. <laughs> I like that image. Yeah. Mario sort of like sitting down and, and complaining about all the bad guys that are approaching instead of just Yeah.
0: Right. Exactly. Or can you imagine Sonic the Hedgehog? I mean, in fact, in so this is just telling uh, Carl Jung said that uh, childhood fantasies and dreams can often tell you the uh, can sort of like the poem of a poem can tell you what the sort of course of your life is going to be. And so I've told you that one of my dreams when I was young, because I didn't grow up with a religious education that came later, um, was E.T. came down to me and said, come with me up in his spaceship. And I've told you how I interpret that. I think that, that uh, that's a meaningful sort of dream. But also I used to have a fantasy because I was a Genesis player, not a Nintendo one, though I do like Nintendo now, um, uh, was that I used to imagine myself as sort of Sonic the Hitchhog because I played a lot of Sonic growing mm-hmm. up and going through levels and uh, doing this to prove myself to my wife. I was like six years old and I was imagining having a wife. Sure. Um, but that strikes me as exactly the right thing for a child to be thinking, to heroically encounter the obstacles of the world to prove his worth to nature. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, nature being represented by the feminine gotcha. in that imagination. Uh, not standing and being like, man, all there's all this terrible stuff around, but thinking, okay, There are things I could help to fix, which means that I can live out the path of the hero, which is the ultimate way to live for a human. So seems to say every major epic of our civilization, the major Western uh, religions and Dostoevsky here, also a great genius. And, um, And if you look at even how we behave, like we've just said about the movies, which we go to see and the video games, we will give endless hours to... There seem to be two ways of doing it. Cain or Abel. Get all resentful about the world or give everything to the world and perhaps even still get killed by it. Or, I mean, certainly still get killed by it in some way or another because we are finite. Hmm. And only in accepting the beautiful tragedy of the fact that the infinity of your being will not ever fully be realized and never fully comprehended and will come to an end, can you actually bring about something uh, beautiful enough to set against that tragic fact? Otherwise, you will be overwhelmed like the underground man with the, uh, the terrible aspects of being because the fact that being comes to an end is terrible. Yeah. But precisely because of that fact, you have to do something with your being during the time of your existence in order not to well up and become dropsy ridden with the Dementor-like thoughts that are maintained within your head because you have never milked slash uh, had them from your uh, your mind belly. You've never <laughs> born the Athena from your uh, Zeus's head. And I know that was a mixed chaotic metaphor, but that was the reason. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, supposed to be, it was supposed to be disgusting, sort of like Milton's description of uh, sin as a Scylla-like figure with dogs around her waist that can then... <laughs> retreat back into her womb and claw her from the inside. It's like, that is what doing evil in the world is like. Because when you do terrible things to other people, you're left with the terrible emotions of what you have done. Hmm. Uh, And it it eats you up from the inside. And we actually speak in that way, right? It's eating you up. What's eating you? What's eating you, Gilbert Grape? (laughs) Um, His giant mother. Uh, And an eatable complex. (laughs) Well, huh. Yeah, so, you know, and it, it's interesting too because I think something I was saying to you and uh, and maybe we can start moving towards that conclusion um, sure. is uh, it was tough going, reading this book for okay. me. Um, While I was reading it, it was like being indicted by a judge. Mm. I was not standing in judgment of this guy and thinking, oh man, what a bonehead and what a terrible guy. I'm so much better than he is. No, 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 no. I was thinking about all the small, resentful little moments and all the times I've wasted time thinking about foolish vengeance for the smallest mm. things that have been done to me. And what's interesting is Peterson says, before you assume malevolence, which seems to be what the underground man always initially assumes, and I would say, as in, in my earlier life, I always assumed you mm. should assume ignorance, error, or stupidity. Right. Because well, many problems happen because of those three reasons. Some because of malevolence. Um, but then while I read this text, it was like, I I effectively had to, like memories of falling snow, recall memories of some of the worst times in my life. I mean, you know, I was, I was asked to leave my college for a semester because of uh, poor grades and behavior. And um, during that time, I had a lot of hate and envy and I thought that a lot of people should have seen me for something other than what I was and that it was the fault of everybody, but myself. Right. And that wasn't an, in reading this, it's just showing me how ugly that perspective was, how wrong I was, how poisonous I was becoming. And, and the fact that I lost many friends at that time seems to me completely obvious because who would want to be the friend to somebody overcome by the, by a devil like that. Right. Um, and who's therefore projecting all of that vitriol onto the world rather than rather than trying to sift it out of oneself. And I would say that is a, in large part, something that I continue to try and do with you in these conversations that this is not only an attempt to express literature, but to sort myself
1: out. Uh, Absolutely. I, I feel the same. I mean, I think that that is another good argument for withholding this kind of literature, not that it's dangerous per se, but that you need a certain amount of experience in the world before it's going to really connect with you and that you'll be able to see it as something um, lived out and not sort of just theoretical, you know? Right. Right. We're no longer
0: just staring at the images on the wall. We're looking at the light, which means we are looking within to our own experiences of what we have done without. We are not, just looking at others by looking at these, these pieces of literature and movies and judging them as good or bad. No, 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 no. We're seeing what's good and bad in them and therefore seeing what's good and bad in us, ideally so that we can do more good things and better and be better at doing good things and, and better also at not doing bad things or at least limiting them to whatever extent we can, because we're conscious of the fact that we can be so wretchedly envious and vengeful and and wasteful of our time and and cruel to those around us in in the most malevolent fashion, the m- the most unheroic possible fashion. I mean, I, I mean, at that time, rather than playing the Mario game and uh, destroying Koopa and all that, I, 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 the level would have been me in a dungeon, possibly next to Princess Peach, just saying cruel things uh, right. occasionally. Which, yeah. just
1: imagine how terrible a game that would be. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You notice that. And then imagine that that's your life. Nintendo hasn't made that game. They haven't bothered to go to go that. Route. <laughs> At least it's not to that point yet. <laughs>
0: right. Yes. Well, very well. Very good. Very good. It's well because I mean, even if we exist in a time when we doubt the the existence of a central narrative and nature that seems to run through all humans clearly, um, that when we seek for escape through video games, we, we don't we don't see. To get further and what well hmm, we don't seek to get further entrapped in though that's kind of an interesting idea i, I recall you and miss stephanie bell talking about the difference between open worlds and non-open worlds now i guess i guess actually we do provide ourselves with that opportunity through like grand theft auto and other schools yeah. though i will say that even in those games i felt i felt bad when i did bad Oh, yeah. And if somebody in the game called me to account for that, at least in Elder Scrolls, Scrolls Morrowind, I would generally kill them for that fact. Uh-huh. Uh, so then I didn't have to hear their chastising anymore. I was I was Cain embodied even in the game.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you have a lot of self, um, like awareness, self-reflective, you know,ness about you. So, yeah, I think that bodes well. <laughs> well,
0: thank. It's
1: taken. Well, you know, just
0: I I think, I think what I've 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 been seeing. From Milton has this invocation to light in the beginning of book three of Paradise Lost. It's the most famous uh, bit of poetry in all his works. It's 55 lines, lines one to 55. And essentially what he says is that he's given up the light of his eyes like Tiresias, Phineas, um, Thamarus, and Meonides, Homer, mm-hmm. in order to become a prophet like they are. And so the idea is the greater amount you consciously choose to suffer, the greater a product you can produce in the world. And, well, that would therefore mean that if I had any level of self-consciousness, it would have come from tremendous amounts of errors and suffering <laughs> and <laughs> learning from them. And so I would say that that is uh, whatever, whatever consciousness I do have is born from suffering, just as the Buddhists say. It's like, uh-huh. And not just the suffering of, say, like having a hard life or something. And, you know, many people have hard lives you can't compare, mm-hmm. even though we are isomorphic. But the true suffering comes from recognizing the evil things I, I have done and thought in my time. And when I say evil, I don't mean things like murder, but I, I do mean things like terrible, like terrible envy I felt at friends who have done well because they deserve to, or, or a desire for vengeance against an institution for expelling me because I did all the things necessary to be expelled. Um. <laughs> Ridiculous. Moments where I too had the opportunity to turn and see myself for what I was and to learn a lesson. And well, eventually, I think in many of these offer for, I think what these texts like Dostoevsky allow me to do is to return to those moments and to see them for what they were now with a more mature perspective so that I can perhaps prevent myself from acting so anti heroically in the future in similar instances. And, and potentially and hopefully even convey that sort of perspective to my students and hopefully share that perspective with other very deeply conscious individuals like you. Right on.
1: Well, yeah, it's always, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure.
0: Always a pleasure for me to Mr. Westchance and actually something interesting about doing these conversations. uh, And I know (laughs) we keep winding down and then winding right back up. It's like, it's like we are the underground man in some way in some ways, is that one thing I got to say to our friend, Mr. Daniel Babcock, is that through these conversations, it's wonderful because it's providing us, well, I feel like it gives us an opportunity to not only sort ourselves out a bit, but to deepen our relationship. It gives us a consistent time to sort of sit and talk to each other over something, uh, I would say manifold things that we, we mutually love in order to explore ourselves in an open way. Yeah. and subject ourselves to not only each other's scrutiny, but any fans' scrutiny or any of our friends who listens' scrutiny. Yeah, um, we're I would, exposing ourselves.
1: Yeah, I, I would love, I would love to hear from from uh, Ben Tanzi and and Daniel Babcock and all those guys, and Sarah Miller, for that matter. I know she was on one of your earlier shows. Hopefully, she still listens. Yes, we're going to we'll, we're anyway. going to have to have her back on soon, and maybe we can all we can.
0: We can do a big uh, sort of uh, not battle royale because that's, that's the wrong uh, no. the wrong tone, like you were saying, non heuristic sort of conversation, but a seminar royale. Yeah. Uh, if if we can manage, if we can manage that uh, on this platform, I know that Anchor allows for up to ten people to speak. Whoa, uh, that would be crazy. That would be crazy. That, w- that would be crazy. We might need to work up to that, but yeah, yeah, I really want to. I want to hear from them too, and I, I would like to have their thoughts on this program. And I I always consider it so brave when anybody comes on air, even, even if, even if a lot of people aren't listening at this point or never at some point, the, the possibility that somebody is, it does add there, there is an extra element of vulnerability in speaking publicly. And um, I, I think that with some of our friends, perhaps they think, perhaps they are a little bit afraid and then upset that they're afraid. And think they shouldn't be afraid because mm. it doesn't actually matter. And I would say, no, 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 that's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is you're publicly speaking. Of course, you're going to be a l- have a little trepidation yeah. about that. You're actually very brave for doing it. Right on. Um, because you're brave for doing anything new in the world. Uh, and, you know, just think about it. How many, uh, like, if you were asked to dance in front of a wedding party, even of strangers right now, would you be comfortable?
1: Mm. Yeah, there's. Well, there's a, there's a kind of good tension to that, I think, which is yeah, important not to lose sight of. Yeah. We sort of always speak of stress as something negative, but there's a there's a kind of creative tension, which is absolutely worth um, struggling with a little bit to to create something to do something. That's worth. right.
0: Stress seems to only be negative if it is the end point. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think stress is the necessary pain of of mental childbirth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. You got to come up with a creative solution. You're actually digging in. You're actually trying to figure something out. And so, yeah, it's like with a good workout too. It's like um, you don't stay in a state of pleasant happiness in yeah. order to get transformation during a workout. You grind you to the you you know you push your will to its utter limit, and um, and you, you find yourself in a pretty sorry state at the end of the workout. And then, boom, you get stronger. That's right. um totally, and so hopefully that's what we are doing here, and hopefully that's what we can help um other people to do uh to pursue their dreams and to bring you know their angelic thoughts out into the world and not to themselves become possessed uh by cynical uh skeptical um meaningless and nihilistic sort of demons yeah, here, here <laughs> here here, 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 and so well, mr Wesley chance uh conversation 11 another success and this has been wonderful and thank you for continuing to come on. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and I can't wait, uh, I guess. So uh, yeah, just one last thing, one last plug. Are you coming out with a new episode of your podcast tomorrow? Bookworm, uh, bookworm games
1: or uh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Games. Yeah. Planning to get back into that. Um, yeah. I finally, I finally got back to uh, playing Earthbound yesterday, so I've got some material. I think uh, so. Yeah, I'll be working on that today, and hopefully release it tomorrow. Yeah. All right. Well, perfect. I'm looking forward to it. I, of course, am a, a listener. I, I asked
0: some questions last time around. I would recommend anybody else listening to listen to your podcast and also to submit questions. You get about a minute to do so. And it's fun. You get a you get to be a part of the action. And like you said, that you think the best way to learn is through a sort of question answer seminar s- sort of conversation. Well, that helps us all to be a part of the conversation that's a wonderful thing about this this anchor podcast at this moment that we can't do that so i would recommend anybody listening to you to not only listen to you uh but also to ask questions right on yeah thanks thank you all right until next time yep take care